Well, I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 1. I know that is different from what you have in your bulletin. Uh, I messed up this evening's bulletin too. Late in the week after they were printed, I uh, went in a different direction. Uh, So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, is where uh, we'll begin, and I'll I'll go ahead and, and pray for us. Almighty God, it's my prayer that you would help us to to feel the weight of the words which we are about to read, Uh, the historical weight uh, that, that was so great for your people, a promise made so long ago which comes to fulfillment. And so, God, I pray that this morning you would give your people eyes to see and ears to hear, that faith would come by the hearing of your word, and that your people uh, would be, or that this scripture reading and this sermon would be for your people a means of grace. I ask this in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you happen to be visiting with us, uh, we've, this Advent season, we've been looking at the kingdom of God and tracing, tracing it, beginning in Genesis 1 and going all the way uh, through scripture. And this morning, we finally arrived in the New Testament. And if you weren't with us last week, I'll remind you where we left off. It was a dark time. The people of the northern kingdom of Israel had either been killed or carried off to Assyria, never to be heard from again. The southern kingdom of Judah, with its capital Jerusalem, 130 years later, was taken by the Babylonians. The walls were broken. The temple Solomon built was destroyed. Its foundation was scattered The last king in Jerusalem from David's line had his children killed in front of him. And then his eyes were put out before he was carried back to Babylon to live as a blind man in the courts of the king. And his people were carried with him. And for 70 years, the children of Israel lived in exile in the land of Babylon. There does come a time later when, they're, when they are allowed to return to their homeland, and some do. But it wasn't the same. And you may remember the questions the people were asking at this time. I heard Dr. Ligon Duncan preach about this, and he noted that there are two great theological problems as the Old Testament comes to a close. What do you do? With God's promises. That number one, his people Israel would remain in their homeland. And number two, a king from the line of David would sit on the throne forever. What do you do with those? The people of God were wrestling with these promises in the wake of the destruction of their nation. And they're asking questions like, Lord, what are you doing? 
Have your promises failed? You said we would always be in the land. You said that David would have a son on the throne forever. That his dynasty would endure throughout the ages. What is going on? We are a scattered people with no king living far away from home. Has your word failed? Has it proven untrue and untrustworthy? Has the kingdom of the serpent finally won? And we talked about the ministry of the prophets last week and how they addressed these questions that people were asking. And they would say, God's promises have not failed. You broke your vows. His words were not untrue. His people are experiencing the bitter fruits of their sin. But do you remember what else they said? Behold, a day is coming. A day when the Lord will do something new. A day when the Lord will raise up a king from the line of David, just like a thin green shoot sprouts out of an old dead stump. Something like that will happen. And its day is coming. And then everything goes silent. There's no more prophets. No more word from the Lord. The people continue to live patiently waiting decade after decade, century after century repeating the promises of God to their children and to their grandchildren after them? Some do that, but most don't. Most of them move on with their lives. They've got bigger things to worry about, things like the Roman Empire. And so for 400 years, this stump of a kingdom lies dormant with no sign of life. That is, until you get to Matthew's gospel. There's something curious that J.R.R. Tolkien does in his three books that are known together as the Lord of the Rings. At the very beginning of each book, he gives a synopsis of what's coming. You open the book and you have the title page and then the contents where the chapters are listed. And then before you get to chapter 1, there's a synopsis, usually about two or three pages. And if you pay attention, you'll find spoilers there. In the synopsis, there are things that tell you what's coming. Things that will give away how the book ends. And many have asked, why would Tolkien do this? Why include this synopsis? Why spoil the story and the drama? Why give away the end at the beginning? The reason was simple. Tolkien was not writing a drama. He wasn't worried about spoiling the ending. He saw his work as a history of a world he built. We've got something similar at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. 
God wasn't worried about spoiling the drama. He too is writing a history of the world he built. And after these 400 years of silence, how does Matthew's gospel begin? Look at it. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know what that's saying? He's here. The offspring of Abraham, through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed, is here. The son of David, the king who would sit on the throne forever, the king whose reign would be an everlasting reign, is here. The long-awaited king has come. There's no hiding the truth and building suspense. There's no keeping the audience in the dark for dramatic effect. The New Testament begins by saying, the long-awaited son of David has come. And then you continue on. The very beginning of Matthew chapter 2. Wise men from the east show up in Jerusalem and they give away the plot. They ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness. And what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Hopefully you'll remember my definition of the kingdom that I've been using throughout this study. The the kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And so if you have John the Baptist announcing to the crowds that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then it must also mean that the king of heaven is at hand. And it's clear from the start who this is. At the very beginning of Luke's gospel, an angel comes to the Virgin Mary and tells her, Mary, you will conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And listen to this. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see why I mentioned last week how important it is to have 2 Samuel 7. God's promise with David in the forefront of your mind as you come to the New Testament. You will miss so much if you don't. You'll have no sense of the centuries of history and waiting that accompany the announcement of this birth. Without 2 Samuel 7 in mind, you'll know that God is doing something new, but you'll miss these four beautiful words. God keeps his promises. 
And last week I quoted commentator Dale Ralph Davis, who said that what God is going to build for David is something that death does not annul, sin cannot destroy, and time will not exhaust. God be praised. He's kept his word. The long-awaited king comes. He's given by his father the throne of David. Think of the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Specifically, the, I believe it's this second half of the first stanza, which says, Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All the waiting, all the uncertainty, all the mourning, the hopes and fears of all the years are finally met in the Lord's fulfillment of his promises, in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ the son of David. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when speaking about the kingdom within the New Testament, it might be helpful to do so in three different categories. Those three would be inauguration, continuation, and consummation. Inauguration, continuation, and consummation. We'll come back to Numbers 2 and 3 next week as we finish this series. But today, with what time I have left, I want to comment on Christ's inauguration of the kingdom. I think most of us are familiar with inaugurations. Every four years, a large crowd gathers on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., in spite of the cold January weather, and they do so to watch the newly elected president take stage and give his first address. Now, the new president hasn't yet accomplished everything he has in mind. His legislation of choice will have to be worked for and probably fought for. Global conflicts, attacks against the nation... Even wars might come while he is in office. No one on the ground in D.C. on Inauguration Day can say with certainty what this presidency will mean or what will be accomplished in his four or even eight years because his tenure is only beginning. He's being inaugurated. Well, we've got something similar in the Gospels. You have to keep reading in the New Testament to to see the continuation of the kingdom. And by continuation, I'm referring to the church age. That period of time between the first and second comings of Christ. And then you have to read even further to the very end of the Bible in order to get to the consummation. The final return of the king. When death dies and heaven comes to earth. But in the Gospels, 
we read that the long-awaited king has finally come and his kingdom has been inaugurated. Well, in the inaugural address, we learn what this kingdom will be like. From the start, it's clear that it's going to be different from what people were expecting. You think back to 1 Samuel, the study we've been going through this this fall in the choice of King Saul. He was the perfect worldly king. He was the tallest, best-looking guy in the nation. A king like other nations of the world would have wanted And think of who was in charge politically at the birth of Christ. It was the Romans. It was Caesar. That's who the people were expecting. Someone who would come in and establish a kingdom to rival Rome. But Jesus isn't like Caesar. He's not born in a palace. He's born in a cattle stall. There's no national widespread celebration commemorating his birth. The angels celebrate. They inform shepherds who are out in fields, but no one else knows. For the most part, his birth passed unnoticed. His people have no idea who's been born. There's also the expectation that a king be served, that his subjects offer their lives in service to him, and maybe even die in service to the crown. But what does this king give as the reason for his coming? Not to be served, but to serve his people and to give his life for them. Kings are normally surrounded by the cream of the crop. The most important people in society. Just think of the late Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Think of those who were present in attendance. Were there many single mothers there? Did the royal staff go into the pubs and hand out invitations to old geezers enjoying their pints at the bar? What about hospital orderlies? or construction workers, or school teachers? Were any of them present as the late queen's body was lowered into the royal vault? I doubt it. I imagine the room was filled with nobles, with some of the most important names within the the United Kingdom. But what of the Lord Jesus? Who came and listened to him teach about his kingdom? Who invited him into their home? Who did he sit down at a table and eat with? The lowly of the earth. Shepherds, fishermen, tax collectors, even prostitutes. The king of heaven ate with sinners. From his birth and throughout the Gospels, it's clear that this king is not like the other kings of this world. And thus his kingdom is not like the other kingdoms of this world. And let's think about that kingdom definition. Power, people, place. 
The Lord demonstrated His power over sickness and demons, nature, sin, and death. A woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years was healed in an instant just by touching the edge of his garment. He healed those stricken with leprosy, those poor souls who were living in sick communes away from their families just awaiting their inevitable deaths. He cast out demons, those spiritual servants of the ancient serpent that enslaved people and forced them to commit self-harm like cutting themselves and casting themselves into fire. They would see Jesus coming and cry out, Son of God, have you come to destroy us? He demonstrated his power over nature by calming storms, walking on water, causing a fig tree to wither at a word. He fed a multitude by multiplying a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. He had power over sin. He himself resisted every sin and lived a blameless life. Sin had no power over him. But also in the lives of others, in lives of hardened sinners like Zacchaeus, hearts were changed. Repentance came. Restitution was made. And those individuals were given a new affection and were made to love and treasure the things of God instead of the things of this world. He even had the power, the divine authority, to look someone right in the eye and proclaim, Your sins are forgiven. This king even exercised power over the greatest enemy of humanity, death. Mark's gospel tells of the Lord seeing a household in commotion because a 12-year-old girl has died. And Jesus was shown to her room by her parents. And he knelt down and took her by the hand and said, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, she got up and began walking around the house. Later, he would delay in coming to see his dear friend Lazarus, who was deathly ill. And he would arrive at the home of Mary, Martha, and the late Lazarus a few days after his death. And he wept with the sisters. But then he stood outside the tomb and cried, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came walking out of the tomb covered in grave clothes. The kingdom of heaven had come because the power of heaven had come. What about people? Again, you can't have a kingdom without a people. Throughout the Gospels, we see the Lord drawing this kingdom people to himself. They're the ones he cared for, the ones that he served, the ones that he gave his life to ransom. Later, the Apostle Paul will describe them as Christ's bride. 
He sought her and came to rescue her. Remember Jesus talking about the binding of the strong man and then plundering his house? Who was the strong man? Well, it was the devil. What was plundered? You were. The people of God were brought out. In John chapter 10, the Lord will call himself the good shepherd and say of his people, they are my sheep. They hear my voice. They hear them when I call them by name. They follow me. I lay down my life for them and I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the people of the kingdom. Or think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Where the Lord describes the characteristics of his people. He describes those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. By his great grace, his people will be made those who are comforted. And those who inherit the earth. Those who shall be satisfied. Those who shall receive mercy. Those who shall see God. Those who shall be called sons of God. Those who belong to his kingdom have a reward awaiting them there. He's talking about the people of the kingdom. Well, what about the place? Is the long-awaited king content with expelling the Romans from the Holy Land and ruling over that ancient land that was given to David and Solomon? No, he has bigger plans than that. We began in Matthew. But if you end in Matthew, you'll read the Lord tell his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Not just within the ethnic bounds of Canaan, not just to ethnic Jews. You will begin in Jerusalem and then go out. You'll begin in Jerusalem and then go to to Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. There is no geographic limit set to hedge in the feet of those who bring the good news of the kingdom. But thinking of place, we also have those words spoken in John 14. And I imagine we'll talk more about this next week. Jesus is preparing his disciples before his death, telling them many things. And one of them was this. In my Father's house are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and will take you to myself. So that where I am, you may be also. 
know, this idea of place leads us to two major events that are spoken of in all four Gospels. Remember the issue with place? We talked about it back in the second week. God would give his people a homeland where they could dwell in peace forever so long as they remained faithful to him. If they were obedient, they would enjoy long, peaceful, blessed life in the land. But what would happen if they rebelled? What would happen if they they went after other gods and broke their vows? They'd be cast out of the land, just like Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, just like the people were cast out of Jerusalem and carried into exile. But what's new in this kingdom? Well, the king lives a sinless life. A life in which every moment, every thought, every word, every deed was in perfect obedience to the will of God. He earned the right to remain in the land and enjoy peace and blessedness forever. But he doesn't keep this right for himself. He freely gives it to his people. A place to dwell in the kingdom of heaven in the presence of God, in a truly forever home. This he gives to his people, to all those who would look to him as their only hope. And what happens to the sin of the people? What happens to the rebellion, the covenant breaking, the going after other gods? Well, the king took all that upon himself as well as the curse their sin had earned. And he was hanged on a tree. And on that tree, the sky turned black. God the Father turned his face away from Christ the King. Our Lord cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he died. And we see that the Lord himself, as he promised to Abraham so long ago, back in Genesis 22, he himself would provide the sacrifice to cleanse his people and secure a home for them with him forever. You know, this, this is where we see the fulfillment of A promise even more ancient. A promise spoken all the way back in Eden. When when the serpent was told, a promised offspring will come. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the serpent was responsible for the malice and deceit that led to the death of Christ the King. He thought that by having the king killed, his kingdom would finally come to an end. The line would finally fail. But that death proved to be the serpent's own undoing. I probably used this illustration too much. Well, I think it's only maybe once this year. Do you remember what Aslan says to the two girls upon his resurrection at the stone table? 
though the witch knew the deep magic. There is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked back a little further into the stillness and the darkness before time began, before time dawned, excuse me, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. That's what's happened in our own history. A willing, sinless victim was killed in the stead of traitors, and death started working backward. And the first fruit of this appeared three days after the crucifixion, when the king himself was raised by his heavenly father from the grave. And by looking at that first fruit, his people trust and believe that one day, someday, they will be raised to new, imperishable life as well. And again, I'll remind you, this is just the inauguration of the kingdom. It has come, but not yet in full. Christ the King would spend 40 days with his people, teaching them more about his kingdom before he would return to his throne in glory. But again, it's only the beginning. It's just the inaugural address. There's more to come. And we'll see more as we finish out this series next week. And so as you gather with family, friends, neighbors, tonight, tomorrow, or in the days to come, remember that the King of Kings has inaugurated his forever kingdom. And that he has won a blessed homeland for his people in the presence of God. But for that great and final consummation, we wait. But we wait in hope. Let's pray. Father God, again, it is hard to comprehend the weight. Impossible for us comprehend the weight and mystery of what happened in the incarnation. The Son of God coming to earth, the long-awaited King finally coming. Lord, would you give us the eyes of faith to not only read of him, but to see him, to see our sins upon his back, to see our own bodies one day being raised into new imperishable bodies just as it was done for our Lord. Lord, would you help us more and more 
to trust in him for all things. That he would be our utmost joy. And that in your promises, we would find our greatest hope and refuge. I ask this all in his most holy and precious name. Amen.